Hello to all of you watching online. We have an unruly crew here, uh, but they'll, they'll calm down in a second, okay? It's always funny when I send Johnny the outline, sometimes it scares him, you know, because it's so long and there's so much there. Uh, I'm not going to preach every point on there, okay? But let me explain, in, in case you're new or in case you are just joining us in this series. We've been on a series about encountering Jesus. And as we've talked about those who encountered Jesus, obviously we couldn't cover every even type of event in the Gospels of people that he encouraged, people that he healed, things that he did when he met people along the activities of everyday life. But today we come to the last encounter well actually next Sunday will be a type of encounter as well but we come to an encounter where we see Jesus making his way to the cross in biblical context this is after the upper room we will talk about that on Friday night the upper room it's after Gethsemane which is where we will picture on Thursday that the meeting actually took place in the upper room and he went through the garden and all the events that took place during the night on Thursday before Good Friday began. But today we come to what happened when Jesus made his way before Pilate. And if you have your Bibles, let's just start together in Luke and look and see what it says in the book of Luke and see how in chapter 22 they were determined, it says, to find a way to put him to death. And then we come to his betrayal and his arrest and we begin to see Jesus going through the events that I've listed there for you. I want to remind you that as we open God's word together, I'm a human voice directing you to the biblical account and the Holy Spirit speaks individually to you. Now he's not going to say something to you inconsistent with the whole counsel of God, but he will take specific verses, even specific words at time and pierce your heart. The scripture talks about how it is like a sword that divides our innermost man, separates soul and spirit, joint and marrow, judges the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And it's not unusual for a pastor after a sermon for someone to say, when you were speaking today, God spoke this to me, and the pastor looks back at the listener and grins and thinks, well, it must have been God saying that to you, because I don't remember saying anything quite like that in the message. But God uses his word like that. You know, that's the great confidence I have sitting here before you today. That God's going to use his word to speak to you in a personal way. But would you invite him to do that? Let's pray together. Father, we open your word with reverence. We know it is the word of God. We pray now that you would speak to us in a personal way as we wait before you and listen for your voice. So we invite you, Lord, to be our teacher and that's why we pray a simple prayer. Lord God, speak to my heart. Would you pray that aloud with me? Lord God, speak to my heart. 
And Lord, when you speak, we'll know that it's you. And what you say now, we listen for your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You may guess that sometimes I go over the parts of my sermon with my wife. Bless her heart. Years ago, she used to have to, she chose to <laughs> hear me three times when I was preaching three times on a Sunday morning. And I always felt like on Friday or Saturday when I was ending my preparation, why put her through this now when she's going to have to hear it three times on Sunday morning? But now I only get to preach once, so, you know, it's not unusual for me to try certain things out on her. And I started listing for her the things that I saw in the Scripture that go by the number three. And she said, so what's your point of mentioning the threes? I said, it just helps me remember it, okay? I'm not trying to make any great spiritual significance to the fact that we've got three, 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 three. But, you know, when you look at all of the Gospels, you take the gospel accounts, perhaps you've seen them in what would be called a harmony of, of the gospels, or perhaps you've seen it in a chronology of scripture, all of them put together. And God inspired these gospel writers at different angles with almost like different colors at times to color in the story and bring us different details. And there's a lot that goes on in these four gospels to bring all this together and put it together in one this is what happened that night, morning, day when Jesus died. You probably all could think of the first one because you've heard about Peter, how he was so quick to say, Lord, I will never deny you. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. We might want to just let that little phrase sink in for a minute. That he might sift you like wheat. Some of you this morning may feel like you're being sifted. There's a great application to see that the devil can't touch you without God's permission. And there's only so much he can do with you when he tries to come after you. But Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Oh, Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death, he said. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the, roaster will not, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So the denying of Peter is folded in here in this encounter because there were three trials that were religious. And it's during that sector that we see the denial of Peter as he is in the courtyard and he's denying that he even knew Jesus. Perhaps you've been a part of churches that have tried to put on display in a dramatic way, maybe even using music, the different things that happen during these hours of Jesus being turned over and dying and raised, being raised from the dead. I've seen it in churches where in the drama you see Peter over in the courtyard and maybe even a microphone on him as he denies knowing the Lord. And then you hear played through the loudspeaker the sound 
of a rooster crowing and you see Jesus stop and almost like a pin spotlight hit Jesus and the spotlight hit Peter and their eyes connect. I don't exactly know what it was like as Jesus was going from one trial to another and during the same time Peter was denying that he knew him. I mean, there was a lot of power being displayed to take Jesus to the cross. Let's be kind to Peter for the fear that he felt in that moment. But during those three denials, there were three religious trials. Now, I, I had quotes on trials because these were not official trials. As a matter of fact, some would say it would be more like a, a grand jury than it would be a trial. It was with two different high priests, and the scripture records that in different gospels with Annas and Caiaphas. But then the gathering of the Sanhedrin, when the whole company of them, it says, came together. When the day came, the assembly of the elders gathered together, it says in Luke 22. Both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. That's in verse 66 of Luke 22. So as Jesus goes before them, they've been thinking about this a long time. And they've been trying to come up with what they would accuse Jesus of that would be wrong. Things that would make a difference to the government, not just things that they didn't like. And believe me, they had a lot they didn't like. But they were looking for a way to publicly accuse him and discredit him. And so then following these three religious trials, we see the three civil trials with Pilate and Herod and then back to Pilate. And there were, seems like when I was making my threes, I didn't get on the screen here, that there were three accusations. There were three accusations that were made against him. The first accusation was he was misleading the people. The second was that he was somehow telling them they didn't need to pay taxes. And then the third was that he wanted to be the king. So they took those accusations and they took them to Pilate. And Pilate really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Look at Luke chapter 23. They began to accuse him, verse 2, saying, We found this man misleading our nation. What was he doing to mislead the nation? He was trying to tell them they didn't have to keep all the Jewish customs that the scribes and Pharisees were trying to make them keep. And so they were accusing him of some type of movement that was going to be an insurrection. And the Roman government wanted to keep a heavy hand over the Jews and how they did their approach to religion. Misleading our nation. He's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. <laughs> now come on. We know that that was a false accusation. Jesus said, show me a coin and whose picture is on it. Okay, then why don't you give to Caesar what's Caesar's and you give to God what's God, implying what's pictures on you, right? And what do you need to do to give yourself to honor God? So that was the second false accusation. But then it says, and saying he himself is Christ a king. So Pilate asked him, and he found no guilt in him. And verse 5 says they were urgent saying he stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard that he was a Galilean, he thought, hmm, 
Maybe this is a way I can avoid it. I'll send him over to Herod. Luke's careful to point out to us that Luke and Herod didn't get along. Uh, Historians tell us different things that caused the conflict between them. They were in town specifically because of the festival. And when Pilate thought he might could dodge it by sending him to Herod, he sent him over there. That's the second civil trial. And he goes over to Herod, and he saw Herod, and Herod was glad to see Jesus, for he desired to see him for a long time. Some writers said he was hoping for a magic show because he had heard all the things that Jesus could do. And if you've read all four of the Gospels, you know that, that there was uh, all kinds of things that had gone on previously with Herod, specifically with John the Baptist. And so now he wants to see Jesus and say, Is he, if he's better than John the Baptist, I want to see this. I've heard all that he's done. He was hoping to see some kind of sign. Verse 9 says he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, arrayed him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. You can almost see Herod saying, get some kind of robe out of the closet and put it on him. He wants to pretend he's a king, dress him up. He goes back. Verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. Before this day, they had been in enmity with each other. They'd taken different sides on different issues, but they kind of thought, well, we both got stuck with this guy, and we're trying to figure out how to do it. So he goes back for his third, I'm calling it, civil trial. Pilate called them together and said to them, You brought me this man who was misleading the people, and after examining him, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges, and neither did Herod. He sent him back to us. Look, this man's done nothing deserving of death. I, therefore, will punish him and release him. So we're seeing... The first verdict, not guilty. Send him over to Herod, get him back. The second time he says, he's not guilty, and Herod agrees with me. But then they just kept asking that something be done. And so they cried together, away with this man. Release to us Barabbas. Who is this guy, Barabbas? He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. I I want to be careful how I say this. Just because it's mentioned in more than one Gospel doesn't make it more spiritual. It only has to be mentioned once in the Word of God to be right. Is that right? Just kind of shake your head like this. Let me know you're, you're following, right? But it's mentioned in all four because this seems to be a critical thing that all the Gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit wanted people to know something about this guy, Barabbas who was really a no-name guy. We could preach a whole sermon on him. I mean, look, very simply, his name means son of the father. One writer said you could have just called him John Doe. Uh, He was just famous, though. This no-name famous gangster, if you will, everyone pictures him as a huge man who was a very famous criminal. 
And the scripture in more than one place describes exactly what his crime was, insurrection and murder. Now, you may ask, what, what did he have to do with anything? Pilate was looking for a way out. He thought, okay, there's a custom. I'll try this one. <laughs> you know, let's see if I can just agree that we paid attention to what they were saying and we will take him and we will beat him and then we will release him because, you know, it's our custom to release somebody during this time of year. Looking for a way to avoid it, the people just kept crying. No, give us Barabbas. Crucify this one, Jesus. You've read in other accounts where Pilate's wife was all worried, not wanting this to happen. There's some real irony of seeing Pilate sitting in a judge's seat judging the one who will judge everyone one day there's some real irony to think about what was happening as Pilate was saying I don't want to do this to him but they just kept crying crucify him crucify him so if you turn back to Matthew's gospel you begin to see exactly what was going on when Pilate was trying to finish this Maybe you've heard the saying, just wash your hands of that. Where in the world did that come from? It didn't start with COVID, okay? All right? Just because we talk a lot about hand washing, this is not, hand washing didn't start there. Who knows if it even stopped, started here, but it's a very graphic display that Pilate takes in Matthew chapter 27. It says in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing and rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd. It was a very ceremonial distancing of responsibility. He washed his hands, and they said, crucify him. So what happened next? He delivered him over to be crucified. This morning, I want us, as we look to see what these accounts call out of our hearts, I want us to focus on three words. Because these three words, to me, just kept showing up like threads throughout the event. The first one is the word delivered. Now, if I just came in here today and told you Jesus was delivered, you would think, from what? I mean... We normally think being delivered from. But this is no a word that means delivered to. You'll see it over and over in the account. He was handed over. The scribes and Pharisees came from the Sanhedrin and they came and they delivered him to Pilate. Here we see Pilate delivering him to them. But it reminds us that this is not the first time we've heard this idea of being delivered as it relates to the cross. Let me just show you a few of them. And I, I thought, so how many of these do we put on the screen? And I thought, what a great time just to let the Word of God work. Listen, if, 
If you have a red letter edition, these are the words of Jesus we're about to read. Look at what he said about being delivered. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew goes on to say in chapter 26, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. But Matthew is not the only one recording that Jesus predicted his death. In Mark we read, they went on from there, passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. He did not want anyone to know what? Because he was trying to wait on his hour to come. But what we're reading here with Pilate is his hour had come. But here Jesus is predicting to him. He, he did not want anyone to know, but he was teaching the disciples saying, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. Again in Mark chapter 10, see we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles because the Jewish leaders did not have the authority to crucify him but they took him in to the Roman leaders for him to be crucified. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Can you just imagine Jesus telling his disciples that was what was waiting on him in Jerusalem? And after three days, he will rise. But we get nothing that tells us the disciples understood. But I remember reading after Jesus was raised from the dead, he, he, he had told them, he said, look, you're going to be reminded of all the things I've said to you. And it's going to come back to you it's going to make sense. So we read in Luke, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed for them so that they might not perceive. And they were afraid to ask him about it, saying, we don't know what you mean, Jesus, but we're, we're with you, right? Luke 18, C, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man and the prophets will be accomplished. And he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will. That's the celebration next week. It's really the celebration every Sunday. He will rise. So what does this call out of my heart? We saw what Jesus said. What did Paul say? I just want to give you two or three of the examples of this same word. Won't do you any, any good to try to learn a Greek word, but you can, you can picture the delivered over. I was trying to explain this word once, and I said, okay, it's like, it's like a delivery. Somebody goes by and picks up the food and they bring you the food and they hand it over to you and it is brought from and delivered to. Graphically, can you see Paul making the application? Listen, he was delivered up for our trespasses. 
he was raised up for our justification. Or maybe you want to see it here in this great list of we are more than conquerors. We sing this, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we find ourselves feeling rejected, accused, despondent, separated from God? when through Christ nothing can separate us from the love of God? Will he not freely with Jesus give us all things? Hadn't changed his mind since he gave Jesus to die for us. Oh, but many of you have memorized Galatians 2.20, but see it here. I've been crucified with Christ, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself he was delivered up but he gave himself who delivered him the father delivered him he delivered himself he said I have the authority to lay down my life and to take it up again he was delivered by the scribes and Pharisees he was delivered by Pilate but oh he was delivered from the beginning even before the beginning of time Jesus our Savior delivered but the second thread I kept seeing pop up was the thread of responsibility. I mean, think about it. Scribes and Pharisees wanting to sneak away to accuse him and not have to be responsible for it. Pilate tried his best to get out of it. Aha, I'll send him to Herod. Aha, he sent him back. Oh no, what do I do? Avoiding taking responsibility for it Remember, he took the water, he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Never a more weighty statement was given and misunderstood than this one then let his blood be on us. We'll take responsibility. Every time I read that, I think, isn't that the prayer of every lost soul turning those words around and making it our cry? Oh, Father, let the blood of Jesus be on me. Let it be on my children. I hear the announcement of Peter on the day of Pentecost when he says, this promise is for you and for your children. Is there a greater cry in the heart of a parent and a grandparent than let his blood be on my child. Let his blood be on my grandchildren. They didn't understand what they were saying. Avoiding responsibility. We today have to take responsibility and yet cry May his blood be the satisfaction for my sin. We can see the scarlet thread all the way through the Bible from the very beginning when they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and God said it's not enough. And God had an animal slain and put them on clothes of his making. And there's nothing we can do to cover our sin 
but we need foreshadowed by the lamb that was slain in the prophetic system of setting up how the tabernacle would work but today for us it's not a lamb blood put on an altar or a lamb whose hands have been placed on and lead him out of the camp but it's the picture of Jesus who died for me and you oh let that be the cry of your heart today Lord let his blood be on me and on my children what an interesting picture of substitution theologically the substitutionary death of Jesus is played out here on the scene of the stage of the drama of time graphically demonstrating for us through Barabbas he released for them Barabbas he had Jesus scourged and delivered him to be crucified the great exchange we give him our sin he gives us his righteousness we had a debt we could not pay he paid a debt he did not owe we gave him our sinfulness he gave us his righteousness today how does that apply to you personally can you say nobody took Jesus life he gave himself for me he was delivered up for my sin can you take responsibility my sin put him on the cross now, I'm not trying to make this hyper-individualistic here, but I am saying what happened needs to become so intensely personal that you can say, my sin. I was there when they crucified my Lord. And when we confess, when we agree with God about our sinfulness, then He forgives us and we can accept the price paid for us and the substitution that he took my place. Can you make that your prayer today? Bow your heads and let's pray together. Lord, we understand that we cannot comprehend how you could take all of the sin of mankind and lay it on Jesus. Lord, we confess to you that we cannot understand the spiritual accounting that you reckoned that day. But as we enter this week of celebrating what happened in time and in history, we see that he was delivered for us and that we join the host of the condemned bringing our sinfulness to the cross and crying 
may his blood be on me and on my children. And Lord, we see the substitution, the exchange. The guilty one was set free. The sinless one was crucified. Lord, thank you for the way your spirit brings the word of God home to our hearts. And now we pray that we would be able to see with the eyes of our heart what it means that Jesus died for me.